Well, good morning. <clears throat> we are uh, going to be continuing today in the sermon series that we've been in for a number of weeks now, where we've been asking the question, how does the gospel actually apply to specific areas of our lives? And so the area uh, that we are going to be looking at this morning is suffering. Why are we talking about suffering? Uh, well, developing a biblical theology for suffering is really crucial for the Christian. As I'll share in just a sec, the Bible teaches us that we will experience suffering. It's not a matter of if, but when. Uh, and so it's important then for us as believers to understand what the Bible has to say about this important topic. Um, as we start uh, the discussion this morning, uh, I want to make note that we have members of our prayer team available during service. Uh, Jane is in the back over there. Don uh, Williams is in the back over there. Um, recognizing that talking about suffering is difficult. Um, whether you're in a season of suffering right now or it's something that you've experienced in the past, I understand that talking about these things brings up emotions and memories that are painful. Um, and so if you need someone to talk to, someone to just listen, uh, someone to pray with you, we would love to come alongside you. So please do feel free at any moment to get up during the service. Uh, if you need that, you can head to uh, the back corners after service, of course, I would love to be uh, available for that, as well as Corey, and there's a few other members of our prayer team as well. So on that note, let us pray, and then we will get going. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and for all those gathered here and online. Uh, Lord, and we are asking you to speak. Would you help us to see and to grasp uh, your heart for sinners and sufferers like us. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, well, what does the Bible have to say about suffering? We'll start by looking at the beginning of the Bible and asking, when the world was created, did suffering exist? We read in Genesis 1 the account of the Lord creating the world, and we find that actually suffering is not a part of that. Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve enjoy a relationship with God, and everything is how it ought to be. Uh, so what this tells us is that we are not designed to experience suffering. The world we live in right now uh, looks very different than how it did in Genesis 1 and 2. So a part of the reason why suffering is so painful, why it stings as it does, is that we weren't meant to experience it. So how does suffering come into the world? Well, we know the good times of Genesis 1 and 2 do not last long. We get to the third chapter of the Bible, Genesis 3, uh, and that tells the story of the fall, the first sin. Uh, and sin enters the world, and with it, the curse of sin. We all inherit a sinful nature. Uh, the world is broken. Again, it looks different than it did in Genesis 1. And one of the effects of sin entering the world is that suffering enters the world. Uh, so this tells us that just as we experience sin in our lives, so too we experience suffering. Again, not an if, but a when. Will suffering last forever? No. The Bible's answer is no. We come to the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, verses 3 and 5, and we read this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
There is a day coming in which suffering will be no more. When Christ uh, returns again, as he promised he will do, he will wipe the tears from our eyes. Uh, we long for that day, and we, we praise the Lord that suffering does not have the final say. Uh, instead, Jesus does. Uh, but again, we live between Genesis 3 and that day that is coming. So we know we will experience suffering. However, it will not be like this forever. And so another important piece for us to understand is what does the Lord do right now? In between Genesis 3 and Revelation 21, what is the Lord doing with our suffering? The Bible teaches us that God is a redemptive worker. He works redemptively in all things to accomplish his purposes. And suffering, much to our surprise at times, is not uh, excluded from that redemptive work. Look with me at Romans 8, verses 28, and the first part of 29. It reads, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This passage is also, uh, is often, excuse me, interpreted in such a way that seems to promote a prosperity gospel, a gospel that says, look, God only wants good things to happen to you, and what is good is defined solely by you. That is not uh, actually what this verse is really about. Instead, this verse is really getting at the sovereignty of God in all things. Right? The passage says that for those who love God, God works all things for good. God is sovereign over all things, including our suffering. Now, we don't have a uh, time today to get into all the theological questions that come up with what do we do with the fact that God is in control over suffering, authoritative over it, but yet bad things happen. Uh, but again, we know that God is sovereign. More than that, though, uh, we learn what he is doing that is ultimately for our good. We find that there in the first part of verse 29. It's that he's conforming us into the image of his son. He's making us more like Christ. So there's two big things here that we learn. God is sovereign over our suffering, and in fact, our suffering is not purposeless. Right? What do we fear when we suffer such extreme pain? We fear that there's nothing good that can come from it, that, that it's purposeless. But what we learned this morning is that actually God uses our suffering to make us more like Christ. That is good news. Because of those things, uh, the Bible tells us in, in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 that we are not to grieve without hope. Uh, but instead, as it says in Romans 5, we are to rejoice in our sufferings. I was talking with the kids' staff earlier this morning, and uh, one of them, I didn't mention that I was going to be sharing or talking specifically about that verse, and, and she mentioned, you know, thank you for not, because she was in a Bible study and just wrestling with what does it mean to rejoice in our sufferings. Uh, and again, that, that's such a, a challenging thing for us to understand, right? How in the world can we rejoice in our sufferings, right? Some of the most painful things that we experience in our lives, why does the Bible say that we can actually rejoice? Well, the argument in Romans 5 is that because we are in Christ, because of what Christ has done, we've been justified, we've been reconciled to God, we actually have a relationship with him now. And one of the fruits of that relationship is we have a hope, a hope for the present, that talks about the things that we were just mentioning, that God is sovereign over our suffering, that he's in control, that he's using it to conform us to Christ, but also a future hope, 
that longs and yearns for Revelation 21. A hope that says this is not how it will always be. So we rejoice in our sufferings because they're not purposeless, and God is able to use them, and, and he is sovereign over them. But one of the other things, the tensions that we have to live in <clears throat> with that verse is we often interpret it as an either-or, right? Either we rejoice or we suffer. And I think we, when we think along those lines, what happens is we say, okay, I've, I've experienced something. My life has fallen apart this week, but the Bible tells me that I ought to rejoice. So I walked into church this morning, and I put a, I put a smile on my face, and I'm pretending as though everything is okay. That is not what the Bible is saying. Really, rejoicing in our sufferings is a both and. It's having to live in this tension between Genesis 3 and Revelation 21. It's a tension we often refer to as the already but not yet, right? These promises of Jesus that we know for a fact Revelation 21 is coming. But we do not yet experience the fullness of that. So we can rejoice presently that God is sovereign over suffering, that he's using it to make us more like Jesus, and that is ultimately for our good. We can also rejoice that we have a future hope that says this is not how it will always be, all the while we suffer well. Jesus himself models this for us throughout his ministry. Jesus is fully God. He understands perfectly what he came to do during his first coming. He, of course, knows better than we do what is coming in Revelation 21. But what do we find when we look at the gospel accounts? Jesus grieves. He's a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. And so if we come to the Bible and, and we hear rejoice in our sufferings and we think, well, that just means I don't need to mourn, I don't need to grieve, I need to stuff things, I need to pretend as though they don't exist, that's actually not the case. Instead, what does Jesus model for us? He, he weeps, he mourns, he suffers, all the while rejoicing in who the Lord is. So it's a both and, and we just have to live in that painful tension. So all of these truths that that I've said so far, these are incredibly beneficial, incredibly crucial for us to cling to in the moments when we suffer. But one of the cruel things that suffering does is it causes us to ask the question, why? Why is this happening? Or as Christians, I think we often direct the question specifically at God. God, why did you let this happen? Few things in life perplex the human mind more and suffering. But the problem is we often don't understand why. We might get some reasoning or rationale that says, well, it kind of explains part of it. But ultimately, we don't understand really the root of, of why. Right? We can say, well, it, it enters the world because of sin, and so because of the brokenness of the world. But again, that doesn't, any of us that have asked that question, that doesn't really satisfy it. We don't understand, as we affirm the sovereignty of God in our sufferings, we don't understand if he's sovereign, right? If he could actually do something about them, why does he let them happen? Why doesn't he stop them? Again, that, that's the question I was alluding to earlier, that the problem of suffering, the problem of evil that, that we, again, have to just wrestle with. What suffering causes us to do is to zero in on the why, and I think we miss out then on the who. I think that's what the Bible we are, uh, excuse me, argues we need most in our suffering. Not an answer to the question of why, but an answer to the question of who. Who is God in the middle of our suffering? 
What is his heart for us in those dark moments? I'm going to argue that his heart for us is the soothing balm for our suffering souls. And so for the rest of our time together, that's what I want to look at. I want to look at what the Bible has to say about God's heart for sinners and sufferers like us. And I hope to peel back the curtain, so to speak, so that you would see and feel his heart beating for you this morning. So what is the heart of God like? That takes us to our sermon text this morning, uh, which I know you're thinking, David, you've been up here for 10 minutes already, and we're just getting to the sermon text. Don't worry. Uh, I'll get us out of here on time. Uh, sermon text this morning is out of the book of Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. So if you have a Bible, please turn there with me. All right, I will read it for us, <clears throat> starting in verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, I chose this text for us this morning because it's actually the only time in the gospel accounts where Jesus describes, in his own words, his very heart. Who is Jesus at his deepest core? What is he like when our life falls apart? Well, he answers that for us this morning. He says he is gentle and lowly in heart. Gentle and lowly in heart. What does gentle mean? It means gentle as it's translated there. It could also be translated as meek or humble. It's translated as, it's the same Greek word translated as meek actually in the Beatitudes. Basically what it means is that Jesus is not prone to be rash or reactive. Right? He's not uh, trigger happy. Rather, as Dane Orland says in his book, Gentle and Lowly, the posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Not a pointed finger, but open arms. Friends, that is good news. In our deepest, most painful moments, what are we afraid of? We're afraid that Christ has turned his back, right? We're afraid that he's not near and really what this verse is reminding us of this morning is that Christ is with us. He hasn't turned away, but in fact has reached out his arms and said, come to me. Many of us are uncomfortable being around others in their darkest moments. Right? We naturally want to move away from those situations. We get uncomfortable because we don't know what to say. We don't exactly know how to help. And so we just want to get out of there. We feel some sort of, uh, of empathy, of course, uh, but at the same time, we're, we're counting down the moments until we can get out of there. Not so with Jesus. Jesus isn't scared off by our pain and our suffering. He isn't uncomfortable. Rather, he actually knows how to help. He is best qualified to help, and he welcomes us into his embrace with open arms. So he's not just gentle in heart. He is also lowly. What does lowly mean? It means that Jesus is accessible. We can actually go to him when we are grieved and suffering. Again, what do we fear in those moments? We fear that he's far away. Right? We fear that even if we wanted to, we can't actually go to him. That is not the case. The good news is that Jesus actually invites us to come to him. 
The first three words of our passage this morning are an invitation, right? Come to me. Not come to me and watch me be scared off by the depths of your pain. Not come to me and find out that you actually cannot get to me. Come to me. Why? Because you are able to. Come to me. Fall into my arms. See and feel that I am gentle and lowly in heart. These sweet words are Jesus' invitation to all of us this morning. So my encouragement is to go to him. Bring your grief and your sorrow and fall in his arms. Well, another thing we struggle with when it comes to suffering is we wonder whether Jesus really understands what we are going through. One of the great doctrines of the Christian faith is that Jesus uh, is fully God. He is the Son of God, and right now he sits at the right hand of God in heaven. But I think when we consider that, especially in our darkest moments, we wonder how in the world can Jesus actually understand? All right, if he's God, how does he actually understand the human experience? That's the good news of Hebrews 4.15. It reads, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. You see, Jesus isn't just fully God, he's also fully human as well. He's 100% God and 100% man. He understands the human experience. Again, he came down and lived a real life. In that life, he experienced temptation to sin. He knows what it means to be tempted to sin. He experienced sorrow, as I alluded to. He knows exactly what it means to be grieved and filled with sorrow. In short, he understands the human experience perfectly, despite what we fear. The writer of the book of Hebrews here uses a double negative in this verse, right? We do not have a high priest who is unable. Now, the use of the the double negative there is meant to convey the significance of this great verse. It's to make the words jump off the page for us. It's to say, look, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. What amazing, amazing news. And friends, as we suffer today, years ago, whatever we will suffer in the future, Lord, friends, that is good news. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. The word sympathize there is a compound word with a prefix meaning with, or we might use our English prefix co. So the prefix with joined with the verb to suffer. So I'd say with suffer or co-suffer. So if we translate it more literally, what it says is, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to co-suffer with our weaknesses. Or if we phrase it in the positive, for we have a high priest who is able to co-suffer with our weaknesses. You see, Jesus, because of his permanent humanity, is able to co-suffer alongside us in our suffering. It's a statement of his solidarity with his people in their pain, with you and I in the worst of what we will go through. But even deeper than that, not just that Jesus sympathizes, not, that, uh, not just that he intellectually understands what we're going through, but that he co-suffers with us. He actually feels the pain that we feel. When we are pained, he is pained. When we suffer, he suffers. 
Listen to what the Puritan pastor John Owen has to say about Christ's co-suffering with us. Owen writes, Christ is inclined from his heart and affections to give us help and relief, and he is inwardly moved during our sufferings and trials with a sense and fellow feeling of them. Christ is inwardly moved during our sufferings. A fellow feeling of them. Again, in our pain, what are we afraid of? We're afraid that Christ doesn't care, right? That he can't understand, that he can't feel our pain. What's the reality, though? Christ can't hold himself back. His heart is drawn out towards you and I in our pain. Even if he wanted to be cold and unconcerned and apathetic, he can't. It's impossible for him. He cannot hold himself back. There's more going on here than just a a fact that Christ co-suffers with us. Just more than something that we can just believe, that we can comprehend intellectually and just say, yep, I believe that to be true, just as I believe Jesus to be fully God. It's a reality that we can experience subjectively. Jesus doesn't co-suffer with us, again, so that when things are going well, we can say, yep, Jesus Jesus co-suffers with me, but so that when everything falls apart, We experience him co-suffering with us. Thomas Goodwin, another Puritan pastor, uh, actually wrote an entire book just on Hebrews uh, 4.15. So again, if you ever think Corey and I go long on on one passage, uh, it's not 200 pages worth. So uh, you can do with that what you will. Uh, In that book, Goodwin uh, explains his reasoning for choosing the verse, and he writes, I have chosen this text as that which above any other speaks his heart most and sets out the frame and workings of it towards sinners. And that so sensibly that it does, as it were, take our hands and lay them upon Christ's breast and let us feel how his heart beats and his affections yearn toward us. Even now he is in glory. The very scope of these words being manifestly to encourage believers against all that may discourage them from the consideration of Christ's heart toward them now in heaven. What does suffering cause us to do? It causes us to doubt the goodness of God. It causes us to be exactly as Goodwin is saying here, discouraged about the consideration of Christ's heart. Does he really feel my pain? Does he really understand? Is he actually near to me? What Goodwin is saying here is this verse subjectively in this real experiential way would lay our hands on Christ's chest so that we would feel his heart beating and let that be the confirmation of how he feels for us. Dane Ortland again in Gentle and Lowly comments on this quote and asks the question, what would it be like for a friend to take our two hands and place them on the chest of the risen Lord Jesus Christ? So that like a stethoscope, letting us hear the vigorous strength of a beating heart physically, our hands let us feel the vigorous strength of Christ's deepest affections and longings. Goodwin is saying, we don't have to wonder, Hebrews 4.15 is that friend. What would it feel like to be able to lay your hands on Jesus' chest so that you would feel his heart beating for you? That's the good news of Hebrews 
4.15, it exhorts us that this is a reality for us. When we suffer, what happens? We doubt or at least diminish Christ's heart for us. And this verse helps us to believe against those doubts. It jumps off the page for us and says, here is the heart of Christ beating for you, suffering with you, hurting with you. This is who he is. I said earlier that I want to peel back the curtain such that you would see and feel Christ's heart beating for you this morning. In other words, I want to give you the stethoscope to hear the vigorous strength of Christ's heart beating for you, as Ortland and Goodwin are talking about. I want to place your hands on Christ's chest so that you would feel his heart beating for you. And if I could do so, what would you feel? If I could give you a lens with which you could peer into the heart of Christ, what would you see? What actually happens in his heart when he sees us suffering? Well, we get a glimpse of that in John chapter 11. John 11 tells the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And in that account, uh, Lazarus gets sick, and then his sisters, Mary and Martha, send word to Jesus, who's off doing ministry elsewhere. They ask Jesus to come and visit so that he would heal Lazarus. And again, this wasn't just some random person. Jesus knew Mary, Martha, and Lazarus well. He was friends with them. But the problem is Jesus deliberately delays. He waits a number of days before eventually coming to visit, and in the meantime, Lazarus dies. And so the verse that we're about to look at here uh, describes what happens in the heart of Christ when he enters into the room with Mary and Martha and their friends grieving the loss of Lazarus. This is John 11.33, it reads, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. You see, when Jesus sees us suffering, it causes an emotional response in him. There's a great uh, article written some time ago by B.B. Warfield called On the Emotional Life of Our Lord. And what Warfield does is he works through the gospel accounts and he notes all of the time that Jesus experiences emotion. And as Warfield comments on this passage, he notes that Jesus first experiences compassion. That we see Jesus move towards his friends, move towards those who are suffering and mourning, not away from. Right? He weeps, actually. The, the passage goes on to say that as he sees them weeping, it moves him to weep. Right? The same is true for us. When Jesus sees us suffering, he can't help but be compassionate. Right? Inwardly, it moves him. The other emotion that Warfield notes, though, that Jesus experiences maybe deeper down or more at the root of his heart, we could describe as anger, indignation, or rage. Really, Warfield argues, this is the truest meaning of the phrase, deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. So what causes that reaction in Jesus? It's, it's what he's walking into. It's walking into a room and seeing the effects of sin, death, injustice, perceived wrong, 
right? It's because Jesus is perfectly just that he can't help but feel that, right? It would be impossible, as Warfield says, for a moral being to stand in the presence of perceived wrong, indifferent or unmoved. Again, what's our fear when our life falls apart? Jesus doesn't care. He's apathetic. He's indifferent. He's unmoved. What Warfield says and what, what this passage teaches us is that that is impossible. If Christ is really who he actually is, if he is perfectly just, if he is as loving as we believe him to be, it is impossible for him to stand by unmoved as he watches those he loves those he loves, suffer. It's precisely because of his justice, because of his love for us, that when he sees our suffering and pain, his heart is filled with an indignation that says, this is not good. This is what I came to do away with. Again, Genesis 1 and 2, this was not how it was. We live in between Genesis 3 and Revelation 21. And what is Jesus working to restore? That day in Revelation 21, when he will wipe away every tear, he's saying, this is not good. This is what I came to do away with. Warfield, when speaking on this, says, it is death that is the object of his wrath, and behind death, him who has the power of death, and whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage, and he advances to the tomb in Calvin's words as a champion who prepares for conflict. That's Warfield quoting John Calvin. He continues then, what the Apostle John does for us in this particular statement is to uncover for us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation. Not in cold unconcern but in flaming wrath against the foes Jesus smites on our behalf. He has not only saved us from the evils which oppress us, he has felt for and with us in our oppression. And under the impulse of these feelings has wrought out our redemption. Again, what do we fear? We fear he's unconcerned. We fear that he has bigger problems than ministering to us in our suffering. What's the reality though? No, in flaming wrath against the foes of sin and death and the enemy, he has felt for and with us in our oppression. That is Jesus' heart for you and me this morning. This is the Jesus that is walking with you, co-suffering with you in whatever suffering you are experiencing. He has looked upon the unnaturalness of sin and death, and suffering, and his rage is evoked, a rage that says, this is not good. This is what will one day be no more when I come again. Uh, as we close, I want to read some lyrics from a song <clears throat> written by King's Kaleidoscope. Uh, it's a song titled, A Prayer. Uh, it's one of the most raw emotional songs I think I've ever heard. Uh, it's written kind of like a poem uh, as the artist basically just asks all these questions. Uh, it's coming from a place of, of suffering and, and asking these questions. And in one 
uh, the second to last section of the song, over and over again, the artist repeats this phrase, this question, Jesus, where are you? Am I still beside you? Jesus, where are you? Am I still beside you? And then the song shifts perspective, not from his perspective anymore, but from Jesus's. And this is what Jesus says as the song closes. I'm right beside you. I feel what you feel. I'm here to hold you when death is too real. You know, I died too. I was terrified. I gave myself for you. I was crucified because I love you. I love you, child. I love you. That is Jesus' heart for you and I this morning. Despite our fears and our doubts about whether he's apathetic, whether he's far away, the reality is he is right beside us, co-suffering with us. Let me read again our text from Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, are you heavy laden this morning? Are you burdened? Are you suffering in any way? Come to him. Why? Because he is gentle. Because he is reaching out his arms to you, inviting you to fall into them, as the song said, to hold you. Come to him. Why? Because he is lowly. Because you can get to him. Because of, as we took communion this morning, remembered what he accomplished for us on the cross. Because of that, we can go to him. Not just when life is good, especially when it is hard. He is not far away. So come to him. Why? Because he co-suffers with you. He feels the pain you feel. It would be impossible for him not to. He cannot help but be moved. His heart is drawn out towards you and me and our suffering. So come to him. Because he is able to give mercy, comfort, grace, healing, and peace. Come to him, for he is gentle and lowly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are gentle and lowly in heart. Thank you, Lord, that you are not far away in our suffering, but that you suffer with us, that when we suffer, you suffer. Lord, we echo the prayer, I believe it was, of the Roman soldier who asked for your son to heal his son. Uh, and he asks if, if, if Jesus is able to, and, and, and Jesus responds, if. Uh, and the Roman soldier replies, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, help our unbelief in our suffering that doubts whether you are for us that doubts whether you are near, 
doubts whether you understand. Father, and fill our hearts with these promises. Lord, we pray in your name. Amen.